1: There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom and I believe it's my purpose to help you realise your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you are here today. Now, let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. There is a TV show that I am currently loving. Uh, It is so interesting. It is really fascinating. It appeals to my curiosity on certain things and history as well. It's called Dope Sick. And if you are interested in learning more about the opioid crisis in the United States from the uh, early 90s to, or I guess even today, uh, believe it or not, then this is definitely a TV show you need to watch. And my guest today is one of the stars of that incredible TV show, among many, many other TV shows as well, from John Krasinski's, starring opposite John John Krasinski, sorry, uh, Jack Ryan. Many of you would know of that series on Amazon. Well, his name is John Hoganacker. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, John is a great actor. He's been a part of drama Comedy films. He's been a part of acclaimed TV series and on stage as well. John has made a name for himself over the years, bringing vivid, dynamic characters to life on screen. And this year, John, you can see him on Amazon's appealing and highly anticipated drama series, Jack Ryan, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, this series follows the uh, coming CIA analyst, Jack Ryan, who is thrust into a dangerous field assignment for the first time, and he covers a pattern in terrorist communication that launches him into the middle of a dangerous gambit with a new breed of terrorism. Hoganacker or John shines as Matisse, a tough and salty American who works black ops for the CIA as well. You can see John at the moment in that show that I was I was mentioning before, Dopesick. And trust me when I say this, it is such a great watch. Disney Plus uh, releases a new episode every Wednesday. Uh, I've been binge-watching the majority of them that I can watch at the moment and loving every second of it. But John can also be seen in some other films such as uh, Very Harold and Kumar Christmas. Uh, to his, He played um, an FBI agent opposite Mario Kotzliard and Christian Bale in Public Enemies 2. Um, so he's been in a number of great films, you could say, and he's shone through in my opinion, because I remember him in Public Enemies and in Harold and Akuma Christmas too, uh, which is funny. Uh, he played a UK- Ukrainian mobster in that film. Um, but I think this is going to be a fun conversation for all of you guys to experience. John has a, a great story and he's a great storyteller at that. Um, and I love talking to him about his new show, Dope Sick too. So if you do get something from this, please don't forget to share it around with your friends and family don't forget before you leave to subscribe and leave a rating and review over another our podcast too all right my friends you know what time it is it is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom the advice and the stories of none other than my friend John Hoganacker thanks so much Jay it's great to be here with you Sorry, I butchered the introduction there for a moment. I was like, hey man, was good. No, they got say, was...
2: now we've got something to work towards.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good save there. Um, but you've done so many incredible things. I just didn't know which one to mention first. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> um, that's, that's kind of. It's, yeah. it's great to have you on the show, man. The very first question that I do have for you is a question that I normally las- love asking all my guests at the very start anyway, which is, what does success look like for you? It's interesting that you would start with that question jay that's that's one of
2: the uh that's one of the questions that sticks with me from uh theater school actually. I went to the theater school at dePaul University, and uh one of our teachers Jim Ostelhoff, asked us that in our third year, and everybody kind of went around the circle trying to get the right answer <laughs> <laughs> and of course there's no there's no right answer i think um for me uh success is being able to be, uh, happy in the moment wherever I am mm. and seem- I'm still working towards it. Uh, that's going to be, that's going to be a lifelong, uh, journey and I'm, I'm happy to be on that journey.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's simple. I don't know. That, that. I, I, I don't it. know. You know, I remember, I remember at that time, everybody was kind of going around the circle and being like, I think it would be like getting to choose whatever project I want, or I think it would be, uh, driving around in a Countach. I think, you know, all these different things, but, uh, um, to me, uh, I, I have been with the same woman since right after college and, uh, we are blessed with, two children. And I feel so uh, grateful to be in this moment with the three of them. And uh, that feels to me about as close to success as, as
1: I can hope for. Yeah. I love that, man. What do you think that you've learned over the course of your life that it means to be really happy?
2: I've learned that if I cling to the best moments and I measure the rest of my life against them, I'm setting myself up for more sadness. Okay. If, I, if I treat the dark moments and the light moments with equanimity, I find I tend to live closer to what we would call happiness.
1: Yeah. So what are some other things in your life aside from your family uh, and your kids that make you happy currently? Well, as we
2: were talking about before we started rolling on this, um, I am back in my uh, home state of North Carolina. Um, We're living in the mountains And this, uh, to me is the most, and I know you'll, I know you'll, you'll push back on this, Jay. It's the most beautiful part of the world. Um, and I, I've, I have been fortunate in my life to see many beautiful parts of this world. Um, but this is kind of like my, um, my Narnia or my, uh, Shambhala that I always keep coming back to. Um, so being in this part of the world gives me great joy hearing my kids laugh gives me great joy. Um, Finding a funny podcast or a funny TV show, something that I can kind of tune out to with my wife uh, for the hour and a half that we can stay awake after the kids go to bed, that gives me joy. Um, Running the dog gives me great joy. He's uh, Mm. he's about a year and a half old and he's got boundless energy. So we run him in a field all the time and we never wear him out.
1: (laughs) What, What sort of dog have you
2: got? He's actually, he's a border collie. Ooh. Um and they're they're uh you know, they're herding dogs yeah. and they are built to go nonstop. We had him in a like a daycare, like a doggy daycare for a couple of days because we had some stuff going on during the day and couldn't couldn't look after him. And the guy said he was like, you know, you, you might want to look into getting a GPS collar for him because we got <laughs> another dog here that's uh wears a GPS collar and he does about ten miles a day. I think cash, I think cash is doing about thirty miles a day.
1: Goodness <laughs> may. I've got a German shepherd, she's almost 3 years old, so I know what you mean about the endless energy. I mean, we we had to take her for two walks a day sometimes just to wear her out or oh, for we'd, sure. take, we'd take her for car rides and she loves like the breeze on her face because it kind of like tires it out. It's like a drug for her. And <laughs> yeah. then when she when she gets home, she's like crashed on the couch. It's quite funny to see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. I
2: mean, you know, so so like Cash will do all this running like that, and uh, today I took him on a hike. We were back in the woods, and we only did like you know two and a half miles, maybe three plus, maybe about four kilometers, and he is just like totally checked out. And to me, it just, the math doesn't compute. You'd think you could go on and on and on, but he's just like something about the hills. I think it was like being in the woods and hearing little rustles here and there. He's so alert all the time that it was just, uh, it was um, like an overdose on stimulus for him (laughs) and he couldn't see it. Like he's used to being in an open field and dealing with sheep and like maybe one wolf, but this was too much. I think the,
1: the mountain air as well, that was sort of getting to him too. Yeah. Like, yeah. I I wanted to, I can't push back on saying that North Carolina is the most beautiful part of the world because I haven't been there, so I can't really <laughs> push back on it. But I do want to ask you, you grew up in North Carolina, I believe, but you also mentioned to me that you left, I believe, was the age of 18. Why did you decide to leave at the age of 18?
2: At that age, I, you know, I'd grown up in Charlotte and I was, you know, looking back on it, I was incredibly lucky because I had, uh, to this day, I have friends that I grew up with. My kids ask me, how long have you known Kara? How long have you known Courtney? And I don't remember meeting these people. <laughs> like we've literally known each other our entire lives. I went to uh, kindergarten through high school with a lot of the same people. And by 18, I was ready to just uh get the hell out of Dodge and, and conquer the world. Um, you know, I was also, uh, I was raised with just my parents. I have a, I have a, I have another sibling, but she's a half sister and we were not raised together. Um, so I, I think I was just restless to get out and see the world. And I, I couldn't come up with the scratch to audition for Juilliard. Uh, but I could afford to audition for DePaul, which was in Chicago and I was lucky enough to be accepted there. Um, and Chicago seemed uh, to be a tamer city at the time than New York did. Um, so I, I got my mother's blessing to go to, New, to, uh, go to Chicago. So that's, that's where I moved
1: to when I was 18. So did you always want to be an actor? Was that something that you had always thought about? Or was it kind of something that you found along the way? I
2: you know as a as a kid maybe about 10 11 12 years old I I did uh, a couple commercials and I did some plays at the local children's theater I did you know Oliver Twist and I did the best Christmas pageant ever and um and then I got braces and I had braces forever and so kind of somewhere in the middle of that I got into uh my dad was a uh, was a life insurance salesman and the company that he was allied with went under and I didn't understand at the time. And to me, that meant my dad had lost his job. And I, I felt like I had to find a way to secure my future. And this was around eighth grade. And I, uh, so I went up to the Marine Master Sergeant, who was the head of uh, Naval Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps at my uh, junior high school. And I asked him if I could uh, be in his next year's class. And um, so for about a year and a half, I did ROTC. Um, uh, taught by, uh, master Sergeant Padgett there at South Mac. And, um, I really thought that that was going to be my future. I thought that I was in line to go to the Naval Academy. And if I didn't get into the Naval Academy, I'd be at Paris Island right after high school. Um, that lasted, as I say, for about a year and a half. um, and I uh, I kind of decided to go a different direction. And within a year and a half after that, I had really long hair, went from like a high and tight and, you know, wearing uh, my uniform in the hallways at high school to uh, having really long hair and wearing Birkenstocks all over the place and uh,
1: rainbow suspenders because Robin Williams was my idol. <laughs> Good old Robin Williams. Missed that guy. Wish he was still alive yeah. today, to be honest. So where did you go to from there, man? Like you... Were you still, were you 19 at that time? Well, uh,
2: so getting out of the ROTC, that was like, that was actually, the, he would bring kids in early to be cadet commanders for the ninth grade class. So I did eighth grade and I did about half a ninth grade. And after that, I got into speech and debate. And I became uh, interested in, a, in an event called Humorous Interpretation. You take a like a 10 minute cutting of a play or a TV show or a movie and you would perform all the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became a two time state champion in North Carolina, two time district champion. I went to nationals a couple times. times. Um, and so I, I was able to kind of scratch the acting itch with that. But I didn't take any. I wasn't in theater class in high school. And then uh, at the very end of high school, my debate coach tapped the theater professor at the high school and asked if I could get into the senior level acting class. And she let me in. And then, as I mentioned earlier, kind of a lark, really. uh, I auditioned for this very prestigious theater conservatory in Chicago. And, uh, the, the acting teacher at, uh, Charlotte had picked out all these great audition pieces for me and none of them spoke to me. So I ended up doing a monologue from one of the musicals we had performed that year. And she was kind of like, well, I, I good luck. <laughs> Cause I don't think that's gonna, I don't think that's going to help you. Um, but they saw something and they took a chance on me and I got in, uh, and that school at the time DePaul was, uh, one of the last theater schools that would cut students after each year so for the first year we had something like 72 73 kids and you go home or you get a job in the summertime and then you get a letter that says please come back for your sophomore year or please find something else to do with your life um and i made it past the first cut and then after the second year they cut of cut it in half again uh and if you make it past that then you're you get to go the whole way through. So I was able to graduate and then, uh, right around graduation, my wife, um, was, uh, had been a classmate the entire way through. And we kind of fell in love when we were doing showcase, going to New York and Los Angeles. And, um, very shortly after college, I, I had a job at Chicago Shakespeare theater. Um, it was their first show on Navy pier. And, uh, I got to play, um, you know, a, sort of a smaller role and got to kind of, that was really when my, um, when my education as an actor truly began, because I got on stage with all these amazing Chicago talents, um, Scott Parkinson, Greg Vinkler, Kevin Goodall, Lisa Dodson, Bradley Armacost, all these amazing Chicago stalwart actors. And I felt as safe as a baby in my mother's arms. Um, and so from then I did, you know, years and years of theater in Chicago, uh, Milwaukee and a couple touring shows and did a lot of voiceover. And from there kind of started getting into movies and, uh, television as they, as they came to Chicago.
1: There's quite a few questions that I have coming from that answer, man. Like there's a lot for me to unbox there. Uh, the one thing that I do want to ask you before I continue asking some more questions mm-hmm. is, What was it about acting in particular that you fell in love with the most?
2: My dad was a super positive and funny, funny guy. Uh, He was loved in every room that he went into. He could make people laugh. He was always cracking jokes. Um, And he always compared himself to Alfred E. Newman from, you know, Mad Magazine. Um, What, me, worry? And that was kind of my dad. And I thought, and he also did a lot of commercials and and theater and voiceover in Charlotte um, when I was growing up. And I, I, uh, I always kind of wanted to be like him. Uh, I I certainly wanted to emulate those aspects of his personality. Um, And as a kid, and throughout high school and even throughout college, they, they did their best to beat this out of me in college. Um, I was a clown. I was always goofing around. I was always pushing back against authority. I really wanted to do it my way. Um, and that conservatory approach gave me a. Uh, it gave me a vocabulary that was a shared vocabulary in the arts world and in theater and film and television. But it also kind of like going to Paris Island for the Marine Corps, it, uh, stripped away all of the crutches that you sort of come to the table with as an actor. Um, and I guess that's a good thing in some respects, but in other respects, those crutches, uh, one could argue are, are what make you unique. Um, and so I've, I've worked hard to kind of get back to
1: who I was before I even went. Mm. Did you face, uh, like a lot of challenges starting out?
2: I absolutely faced challenges starting out. I, um, I was lucky or rather I was fortunate, I should say, to, to book jobs in theater. Um, I got my union card for, uh, the stage very quickly after graduation, very early in a city that was lousy with talented white guys my age, my type, um, who were non union. Um, so it's a lot to ask a theater to pay you more than these other guys that they can pay less than half as much. They don't have to pay towards your health care or any of these things. But I knew that that was all I wanted to do. And I would get further and further out on that tree limb and I was just going to keep dancing until it broke. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided that I wanted to be saving for my retirement. I wanted to have health care. I wanted to have all these things locked down and it was worth it to me to take that chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would work really at that early stage, maybe about once or twice a year in theater. And, uh, throughout that time I was dispatching trucks. Um, you know, 40 hours a week. Sometimes I was working the night shift doing that. Um, but that, you know, that's, that's the way it is. So many people in this industry work those survival jobs and some people never stop working them. Um, you know, I would also bust tables. I would uh, worked at a canoe and kayak shop. I did whatever I could do to kind of make the ends meet. Um, until I got to a point where I was, I was in it. I think I was in a, a show that had a bit of an open-ended run and I had booked a couple voiceovers and you know, I look back and and I was like the the balls on this kid to quit his job. <laughs> but I did, you know, and uh I think I took unemployment a couple times, but um that was back then and I've I've been able to cobble it together ever since then and I and I I always, always feel grateful. When I talk to my mom or I talk to my wife, I feel like I, I always say, I, you know, I get to do this voiceover today or I get to travel to so-and-so and do this job because it feels like a gift um, to wake up in the morning and to get to work a 14 or 16-hour day doing the thing that you love. As tough as it could be, um, it is an answered dream,
1: no doubt there. Did you ever think when you were working those particular jobs, did you ever think, like, was there a moment where you thought that you weren't going to quite make it and do the things that you love doing full-time? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think the honest answer is finding that belief in yourself to keep pushing is sometimes the toughest part of a journey, anyone's journey, whether it be a person who wants to make it through law school and become a lawyer or a person who is, you know, supporting two kids and working three jobs. How are, how are, how are you going to get through this day? Are you ever going to go to the beach again? Are you ever going to make enough money to get on a plane again? Um, I absolutely deal with that, Um, but I, I know, and I have known for a long time what I'm here to do and feeling like you have a calling that you're answering is a very, uh, is a very powerful feeling. Um, I can't turn away from it. There's, there's nothing else at this point in my life that I feel I'm qualified to offer the world. Mm -hmm. So like I said before, you know, it's like you really are getting further and further out on this limb and you're just going to keep doing the dance because that's what you've got to offer the world. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I am with it. And the answer to your question is yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We were, um, we were doing some press for dope sick and it was me and Peter Sarsgaard and Jake McDorman, And um, the, the journalist asked us, do you guys, you know, now you, you've got this great show coming out and you, things seem to be going great for you. Do you ever remember a time where you didn't know what your next gig was going to be? And we're all sitting there with long hair and beards. And we're like, uh, right now, (laughs) it's like, that's the reality, you know, um, you just keep swinging. And when you get these jobs, generally, a lot of the actors that I know and have worked with are financially very conservative people. Like, you know, you, you get a plate full of food, you take a couple bites and you put the rest of it in a drawer, you know?
1: (laughs) I, I like to call it Persistence as well as that inner belief, that inner drive that you just somehow know that it's going to work out for you some way, somehow you just don't, you don't like see the steps to get there, but you just know that it's going to work itself out eventually. And I think it's, it's also like along with the persistence, there's also a lot of patience that also is attributed to it. I mean, I'm still like 25 and I'm still learning this (laughs) as I'm going. But it's very much like the creative industry I've noticed is mostly cutthroat. There's a lot of people that want to be part of it. And it's even more difficult now to quite make it or or get, I think nowadays if you just get a job, one job, you're happy and you're grateful. Like because you then who knows where that could lead to could lead to another one down the line. So yeah, I man.
2: No, I think you're right. I think you're right, Jay.
1: And I, what you just said
2: reminds me of something that I've, I've often thought of in the past, which is when times are the toughest, I often think of my future self sending good, va- good vibes back in time to my current self.
1: Yeah, that's
2: good. I think of one day I'm going to get out of this, yeah. I'm not going to be in this place forever. And I, and I have faith in that. And I draw that faith from this idea that my future self is sending back
1: strength. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to remember that. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I needed to hear that, actually. So thank you for sharing that. If you were, John, to go back to your younger self and give yourself just one piece of advice as you're going along the journey, what piece of advice would you want to give yourself, your younger self? And do you think you would change anything in your life as well?
2: I believe it was Maya Angelou quote where she says, essentially I would not give anything for my journey now, you know, um, as hard as so many moments in my life have seemed and have truly been, um, they have built the person who is sitting here talking to you and I have to, I have to be grateful for the knocks that I've taken and for the lessons that I've learned. Um, because if I hadn't have taken them, if I hadn't have digested them, I would, I would be due to repeat those lessons or I would be due to learn them from scratch. Um, I feel like I would counsel my younger self that it's not necessary to run constantly. Sometimes you can walk and get to the same place in the same amount of time.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's oftentimes so easy for us to get ahead of ourselves because we want it now, like, I mentioned before the patience factor we can be very impatient so i think it's a good lesson for anyone at whatever stage of life you're at to just stop to just focus on what you have right now i think just the attitude of gratitude that's important so I think another good lesson to learn man i appreciate you sharing it yeah I, I agree jay so moving along your story a little bit i wanted to ask where did you, which film for you was like one of your, your favorites to be on, like being a part of it, which one, Harold or, Kumar or <laughs> <laughs> um or the public enemies one, or was it a, a smaller film for you? I'm always curious about this one. Do you have a favorite or is it like a combination of favorites? You're allowed that too. Yeah. You know, um,
2: this is uh <laughs> this is probably not going to be a super was, this is probably going to surprise you maybe it will maybe it won't um i i always pushed back against the fact that a lot of my career i've gotten to do uh funny commercials and voiceover and things like that it's kind of like this you know this little secret that I try not to tell everybody about. I'm like, no, no, no. Look, I played Hamlet. Look at this. (laughs) Um, but I think (laughs) some of the funnest work that I've gotten to do and the most fun I've had, uh, it's all, um, it's all super rewarding at the end of the day when you make it through, like I, I think back to times on Jack Ryan, when I, you know, hurt myself for uh mm-hmm. or we were just pushing and pushing and pushing to get the shot and we were in a jungle or we were in a desert. Um I'm I have a, a wonderful friendship with a commercial director Jim Jenkins and I've gotten to do so many different fun spots with him over the years. And they're not like the, you know there were there were people got to see him here in the states and and they the thing that I love about them is they're like short form, uh, sketches or improvisations that when people see them on television, generally they're, they're caught off guard by them. They laugh. I got to do a spot with, um, Robert De Niro. I got mm-hmm. to do, uh, I did this, um, I did a couple of FedEx spots with him. I did this long running campaign for Bud Light where I played, uh, I played a King who was just a complete and total idiot. Um, and it it was so much fun. Uh, and we shot that all over the world. We shot that in, um, New Zealand, which I mentioned to you, I know I I can, you're going to get angry now. I'm talking about New Zealand. Um, but, uh, we shot it in Spain. We, you know, we were in New York with that and, uh, it was just an absolute blast because we did that for three years. We had the same, uh, director of photography, line producer, director. Uh, it was like a family. Um, and I think that that's something that I've all, it's always appealed to me, this idea of like landing in a show, uh, where you get to, you get to dig into a really long arc and you get to go different places with it. And it, And you're with a a group of actors that really become like a family because you're doing it year in, year out. Um, Technicians, crew, uh, creatives, the whole thing. Um, And that so far is like the closest I've been to that because from season one to season two of Jack Ryan, it was really um, uh, John Krasinski, Wendell Pierce, Allison Uh, there's a few people that came to the second season from the first season, but for the most part, it was just a small group of us. Um, I, I love being around other actors. I love the, uh, the friendships that get forged when you're, you know, you're just going crazy by the end of these really long days, or if it's a night shoot, which man, I gotta tell you, those are just brutal. Anybody will tell you, it's like (laughs) your body is not meant to work like that, but, uh, it's it's a, it's an acquired skill and a discipline and um, great friendships are formed through, through them.
1: Mm. I, uh, I myself am not a night person. I struggle. like I, I don't like doing night interviews, but I will do them if I need to. <laughs> oh, yeah. What time is it where you are right now? It's uh, 8.33 a.m. currently in, in Sydney, Australia. We, I'm more of a morning person. Like Believe it or not, I'm much more awake at 4 a.m. than I am at 10 p.m. at night. So I am usually in bed around 8 p.m. Sydney time because that's usually when my brain goes to sleep.
2: <laughs> it just <laughs> yeah. wants
1: to shut off. <laughs> but I, know I tell you, you mean, man, man, if you,
2: if you get to a point where you, uh, you have children that will, <laughs> you know, I, I always, like uh, my wife and I, if we can just stay awake past the, the our older child is 12 now. And he's like, he's hit his growth spurred. He wants to kind of stay up and hang out and talk. And we're like, all right, buddy, go to bed. So mom and dad can watch some TV, <laughs> you know, just kind of hang out and you have adult talking time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the end of the day, man, you're just so beat. And then the days start early. Um, but, uh, but I got to tell you, this is, this is, this is the best part of my life so far is getting to be like right in it with these two little human beings. Um, and we, the period of COVID was, we treated it like, um, found money. Like it was a gift. Uh, it was an opportunity to just really dig into a period of prolonged Intense togetherness. We did not spend vast amounts of time on our screens, which I'm grateful for. Um, we spent a lot of time outside. Uh, when we were still in Illinois, we had this great um, we had some land in the northwestern part of the state. It's kind of hilly out there. It's beautiful. And we had a little one-room cabin, no electricity, no running water. There were a couple springs on the property. Um, but we would be out there with a wood burning stove and oil lamps and just listening to the barred owls and the coyotes. And uh, man, it was so very special. So Mm. I'm, I'm grateful for that time. I'm grateful that we were able to, to have that experience as tough as it
1: was, you know, for other reasons. Yeah. I think in today's day and age, we've kind of like, we're more wired than ever before, but we're kind of losing that connection with nature, with our true selves. And I think just being able to get outside, I think also the, the pandemic kind of made a lot of people just stop and reflect on their life. And yes, I know a lot of people did also go out in nature and enjoy themselves in nature as as much as they possibly could. Uh, I know I I did a lot of that, <laughs> a lot of walks outside. With friends and family. It was a beautiful time, man. So I completely understand that. I mean, I needed to, we weren't allowed to really go too far, but there's like a place here in the Blue Mountains that is just a beautiful place to be. It's so serene as well. Like the views are incredible. If you go there at the right time, that is, you can see it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, man, like I think it's, I think you're right. It's just, uh, just being grateful for who you have in your life currently and what you have in your life currently too. So kind of a similar message to what we were just mentioning before the show that you were a part of called Dope Stick. And I wanted to ask you how that all came about and, and what were some of the the lessons that you learned while being on that show and what are some of the things that you didn't enjoy and what are some things that you did enjoy? I know there's quite a few questions in there. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So Dope Stick, the show is drawn primarily uh, from the source material of the book by the same name, Dope Sick, by uh, Beth Masty. And what she does in the book is she charts the, the course of the opioid crisis in the United States um, from the creation of the drug OxyContin by Purdue Pharma. And, She takes a good long look at how that company got OxyContin, which is essentially opium, lab made opium uh, through the approval process at the FDA and to market um, and how they created a market for it in the United States by saying, well, we have to create conversations about pain in doctor's offices all across the country. So we have these charts in doctor's offices in the United States. You still see them occasionally with several smiley faces on them going from happy to anguish. And they ask you to put your finger on the one that feels like how you feel represents how you feel. And based on that, um, we then prescribe a drug like OxyContin, an opioid. And CONTIN uh, stands for continuous, continuous release. The idea that you pop this pill and over a sustained period of time, 12 hours per pill, um, there's a slow release of opium that addresses your problem, your pain. Of course, Very quickly after this drug was rolled out in communities uh, where people were mining, were farming, doing a lot of intense manual labor and uh, suffering severe injuries, uh, it became clear that this drug was ripe for abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, And a narrative came down from Purdue Pharma that only drug addicts, Abuse drugs. So the onus is placed on the patient who has been prescribed this drug for sometimes sort of middling injuries, not necessarily life-threatening injuries. And I think it's also important to note that this is a perhaps a useful tool for doctors who are treating patients who are, you know, coming out of um, open heart surgery and are going to be in the hospital for a few days. And doctors need to manage that pain while the patient is there at the hospital. Um, That's different from, you know, I had a a family member who was running their dog in a field recently and broke her ankle, went to the ER and was sent home with a prescription for Oxycontin. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I was working on this show, she was super familiar with it and called her general practitioner. That's her main doctor. And they uh, prescribed her some different medication that was non-addictive. Um, as you can probably tell from me kind of talking about it there for a second or two, I learned a great deal about how this crisis came into existence. And that's down to Beth Macy's book. Um, uh, Certain aspects of it are infuriating because we want to be able, as people in a country uh, who vote, um, we want to be able to trust the people that we've voted for to uh, take steps to make sure that we're taken care of and protected and that we're safe and that our best interests are at the heart of every decision they make. And, of course, this is the United States and the business of the United States is business. Yeah. So oftentimes it's really down to money. Yeah. Um, and that's a very scary thing to be reminded of, um, in a country where people like to tell themselves that we are, we're civilized and we care Mm -hmm. for one another and we, you know, we are, we want to see ourselves as good people. Um, I think the the story is very very important because from time to time, you know, we generally walk around in this country, I I imagine it's similar in Australia, uh feeling like we've been um slipped a mickey, like we we haven't gotten the entire story. Um we've been lied to or we've been cheated or or something along those lines. It's occasionally important to be reminded Exactly in which ways we've been cheated and we've been lied to. Um, and here in this country, it's important to learn that we keep using this phrase buyer beware. Just because you go into a doctor's office and you're face to face with a medical professional that you trust, you still need to do some research before you put a drug in your body um, because some of these drugs can obviously have life altering effects.
1: It's very interesting because if big is doing that for that drug and the general population likes trusting the government and big pharma and the medical professionals, it oftentimes raises the question, well, if they're doing that with that, what else are they doing as well behind the scenes? Oh. You just, you know, so I think it raises a very, very important question that I hope people start listening to. (laughs) I really do, to be honest with you, man, because it is an important issue and it's one that needs to be addressed because you're right, it is mostly about money, which as sad as that is, um, is the truth. And I think it needs to somehow change. But yeah. Yeah, I think
2: that um, I I feel like the journey of my life over the last couple years has been about building more empathy into the way I see other people. Um, There have been uh, very tough things, very difficult things that my family has had to go through in that period of time. And of course, that's all against the backdrop of COVID-19. Um, So I know that as tough as things have felt for people in my immediate sphere, things have been tough for other people in their worlds as well. And that it's very important um, when there's so much uh, drama and tension and anger and pain in the world to extend grace to one another and to give one another uh, the benefit of the doubt and to remember, you don't know what this person's backstory is. You don't know what this person's going through today or what they went through yesterday.
1: I think being Um, able to just have a conversation, like open-ended conversation, man, like what you and I are doing right now and not have this fear attached to it that what I'm going to say here is going to cause offense or, you know, belittle another person of their experience or whatever it is, because that only just causes resentment and hate. And then it causes what we're seeing in the world, sadly, today is this massive divide. And it's just, it's sad to see. So I like how you mentioned giving people a little bit of empathy, giving them a a chance at least, giving them a bit of grace as well. I like saying, and just, I'm, I'm that very, person that just says show up in love no matter how hard it actually is show up in love and mm-hmm. times are, you know it looks like it's getting worse and worse as the days are going on but i still hope i still hope for humanity i'm the eternal optimist man <laughs> well i think you men. have to be and you know I, I,
2: another another uh saying comes to mind when i was a kid there was a an, a, a youth minister at my church who um, I think somebody went up to him and and was kind of giving him some backstory on a kid in our youth group that had had some issues, and I don't know if they were like behavioral issues or family issues, but the, the kid was kind of, had had been a bit of a jerk to a lot of other kids. And the youth minister was kind of like, you know, hang on, it's I think it's really important for people to write their own stories with me. Yeah. And I've never forgotten that if we, uh, allow other people to write those stories for us, then we rob ourselves of the opportunity to get to meet people where they are and, and really get to see one another as individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's very, very important right now. And, you know, part of what you said about breaking into the entertainment industry being harder right now, I think it's basically everybody's, got, uh, everybody's got the tools to, to try and break into the entertainment industry. So there's a lot of noise and it becomes harder and harder to kind of find the noise that you want to listen to. <laughs> um, that's good. And the part of that, that, that becomes challenging is we a lot of the noise that we're receiving right now is what we're meant to believe and what various corners want us to believe about other corners. Yeah. And, uh, the second I hear that, the second I start to feel like someone's got an agenda, I just kind of, I don't have any time for it anymore. I run mm-hmm. the other way. I, I, um, uh, I really, I, I really seek out, um, well, if you're saying this, somebody else is saying the opposite thing. Yeah. And I, I, I just want to educate myself on both sides. So I may sit and listen to the one, but you can bet your bottom dollar. I'm going to go and look and see what I can find out about the other.
1: Yeah. I think you got to look after your own mental health. And sometimes someone else's opinion can be too much. Like they can be completely over and above, which is not a necessarily a bad thing. I'm, I'm not saying that for them, you're allowed to be that way. But for me, or even for you, John, I think just taking a a step back away from that person while they're going on and on and on and just looking <laughs> after yourself. I think that is also important because at the end of the day, if you're not looking after your mental health, then what else have you got? Like, it's such a, yeah, it's not good, but yeah anyway
2: <laughs> no I'm with you i, I my dog was is, is looking at the door like he's about to start barking
1: at it, and i don't i don't I don't want you to get interrupted. <laughs> it's all good, man. My dog's on the couch at the moment, she's like she you'll you'll you be able to hear her. trust me, she's got a loud bark <laughs> but John, this has been a a fun conversation. I've enjoyed getting to know more about you and an unboxing the many stories that you no doubt have in your life uh, still to come as well which is very exciting. So I appreciate you you making the time to be here today. My final Absolutely, question Jay. for you, my friend, is, is a question that I love asking all my guests at the very end. It's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you Of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done, don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic for sake of argument. They've been able to get it and show it to you on your hundredth birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? That I was happy
2: and that I was grateful more than
1: I was sad and depressed. beautiful send off message man john thank you so much for your time today man your story your wisdom your advice and for joining me today on the story box podcast thanks a lot jay Take- i really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story i just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today it is my prayer that you would have felt inspired is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh.